Well, two weeks ago, um, we, we, were, we noted uh, in uh, Revelation 3.10 um, that, that this was the uh, key text in the book of Revelation um, for uh, uh, the dispensational view of, uh, of the rapture of the church because you have kept the word of my patience and I shall keep you from the hour of trial that which is about to come upon the whole inhabited earth to test those dwelling upon the earth. And, and we finished up that lesson, and, and we were well over time, and I joked that we had no time for questions, but now, now we do. Uh, we have, did, does, did anybody, if you were here, now this is two weeks, you have to be able to remember back, uh, t- two weeks, it's so not, not, not an easy thing. Uh, but just before I take questions, so let, me, let me do just a little bit of a, of a survey here amongst us. Now, I, you know, I've, I've taught Sunday school for a long time, and only about 19% of the Sunday school class ever participates in the survey, which, which does hurt its, its validity and its youthfulness. And so now we, we're just saying, all right, every, everybody, everybody participates. Everybody participates. So the the opening question is, how many of you were raised in a church where you were taught pre-tribulation rapture? All right, so that is a very good percentage. And my my hand is up, uh, not just to encourage you to raise your hand, but because I was as well. And, uh, and actually uh, attended the uh, Moody Bible Institute, where that view uh, is, uh, was taught, at least. I don't know what is taught there now. But that is a fair percentage. So let me just see what it looks like the other. How many were not? How many were not? Yes. And so here, you were not in this room are clearly in the minority. Um, um, and, uh, uh, and, and it goes beyond that, because it's not just the church that you were raised in. It's, uh, if, you, if you listen to Christian radio, uh, that uh, pre-tribulation rapture view uh, dominates <laughs> uh, Christian Radio. Uh, David Jeremiah is the is the one now that probably has the uh, largest uh, radio audience that is really tuned in to that perspective. In fact, the other night I was uh, uh, watching a little piece of Fox News and saw the you know there's a, a commercial for his book you know where. Uh, uh, where a, uh, a speculation about what might be 
the rapture is uh, is played out. It is played out there. Um, now everyone will admit, though though that we we attach the 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 book of Revelation uh, to the to the rapture. In in actual dispensational theology, the the book of Revelation is not really the key to the system uh, as relates to the the, the to the to the rapture. Um, this really is, uh, other than the framework of the book, this is really the only place in the book of Revelation where a claim is even made that that John might be referring um, to the to the rapture and um, and let me just remind you of the argument that I gave you um, last time, uh, namely that in context here, in the context of the seven letters, in the context of the book of Revelation as a whole, but also, therefore, in the context of this, of this letter, the, uh, the prevailing... The prevailing mood of these letters is encouragement to persevere through trial. Uh, Through the trial of being the people of God in a relatively hostile environment to the people of God. That is the overall context of the book, and, and you see that, and we'll see it this morning uh, for the final for the final time, uh, right? So seven times in a row in each of these seven letters, near the end of the letter, you read what we'll read this morning in a minute in Revelation three twelve, the one conquering. I shall give him. Crown the one conquering. Well, what is conquering? Hanging on to your faith. The one who hangs on to their faith in the midst of the opposition and in the midst of the temptations of the present evil age. Um, uh, they shall receive everlasting life. That's, that's the thrust. That's the thrust over and over again through this, uh, through this book. Uh, so all that said, did anybody have any questions they wanted addressed before we uh, moved on to the last letter related to... Uh, Revelation 3.10, or really anything. Anybody? You see, by waiting two weeks, you couldn't possibly remember. Uh, and so it's still you know, a, pretty, a pretty clever strategy on my part uh, to get the flu in between. Um, I, I, told, I told Pastor Dan uh, uh, shortly after, well, at our next staff meeting, 
you know, that uh, um, when I, after I started to get sick, I told Pastor Dan, well, people in the Sunday school class will say he got afflicted for that little word he made about the, the rapture. And so, uh, uh, um, but anybody. Go ahead, Doris. No, don't be afraid to ask. Okay, now there, that is, an, that is an excellent question, actually. So Doris is asking, in the, in, the, in the dispensational system, theological system, and, and make no mistake about it, the pre-tribulation rapture position is part of a theological system known as dispensationalism, uh, there was virtually no, nobody believed anything like that until the formation of this system about a century and a half ago or, or so, a little more than that. Um, and one of the key pieces of that system is the absolute distinction between... Uh, the Gentile church and an ethnic Israel so that there are two people of gods. There are, there's, there's historical Israel, people of God, Abraham's offspring genetically, and that definitely exists right up to the present day. So that is, there is that. And then there is uh, the Gentile church. Now, um, the argument that, that I would make and that most of the people that I have read uh, preparing these lessons on the book of Revelation, one of them, I'll just name one in particular, uh, the, the I believe the, the best, the most scholarly, the most well-researched um, commentary on the book of Revelation in the English language is done by a guy by the name of Greg Beale. Uh, Dr. Beale taught at Wheaton for uh, years and Gordon-Conwell for years and then back to Wheaton. And then he, he's, he's been around but as a scholar of this sort of literature, uh, he's certainly uh, near the top of the top. And so to your question, what, what Dr. Beale would say to you, Doris, is this. You can't, you can't make that distinction really between the Gentile church and Israel in any formal way. Because the Gentiles, the Gentiles are only saved through the Jewish Messiah. Uh, our salvation is salvation in Christ. Uh, 
The Apostle Paul, you know, his favorite little phrase to talk about Christians are those who are in Christ. They're in Christ. They're in Christ. They're in Christ. And so we are identified with Israel's Messiah. We are one with Israel's Messiah. We are in Israel's Messiah. And apart from Israel's Messiah, it's impossible even for an ethnic Israel to be a genuine Israelite now. The only way to be a genuine Israelite is to have embraced Israel's Messiah. Now, at the close of the book of, uh, excuse me, the close of chapter 11 of the book of Romans, um, there's an argument again, of course, about all of these things. But I would certainly be on par with those who see at the end of the age a time when ethnic Israelites will come to faith, possibly in mass, in Jesus as the Messiah. That's how I read that. That doesn't really have anything to do with the rapture, though, uh, at all. And, and with the broader system that, that you're referring to, and you're correctly referring to it. In, um, you know, the church is taken out, and then Jesus comes uh, uh, back at the end of the age, and he deals with ethnic Israel throughout the millennial kingdom. Uh, that's more millennial-related than tribulation or pre-trib-related, but it is a thing. It's a big thing uh, in, that, in that system, a really big thing. So I don't, I don't know if that's helpful, but I don't think you can really make much of a distinction. In other words, everybody in this room who's a Christian is identified unbreakably with Israel's Messiah. Uh, our, our salvation comes to us through an offspring of Abraham named Jesus. And we're going to be talking about that the next several weeks on Sunday morning. That's what Advent is all about, is that uh, the promised Messiah is an Israelite. And, and the salvation of the world takes place through Abraham's offspring. Uh, you know, Revelation 12, 3, all the nations of the earth blessed through Abraham. Well, that's through Christ. That's through Christ. And so there are, in, in, in that sense, um, you know, all this language is really loaded. So you talk about... Um, Genuine Israel, uh, according to Beale, you would be a genuine Israelite because you're in Christ. Now, at that point, somebody says, oh, okay, so you believe in replacement theology. No, no, no. You're not replacing anybody. Uh, In other words, all genuine Israelites now have to be in Christ, regardless of their ethnic background. Christ is the key to everything. In him all the fullness dwells. Everything is found in in Christ, Jew or Gentile, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2. The wall of partition has been torn down, and there we are, one people of God. But there still may be a role for ethnic Israel in the future. That's a long answer. (laughs) Barb. 
Well, no, I don't want. I don't want to speak of it too pejoratively. Fall into, but you know, <laughs> there. You know, here, here's, here is the. You know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say a critical thing in a moment about uh, this dispensationalism. Not all that critical, but but, but let me say a super positive thing about about them. Uh, dispensationalism generally here in America. Tremendously Bible-oriented. You know, there, there's a reason why most of the churches that you might hear this in uh, were called Bible churches. You know, um, uh, attended. You know, I attended. I mentioned Moody Bible, Moody Bible Institute. So tremendously Bible-oriented, and then uh, springing out of that. Um, came a group of scholars that would would eventually form the basis of a Dallas Theological Seminary, where most of the key thinkers in this movement taught. The earlier you go, the more likely that they are associated with that. Now, these Bible institutes and these Bible-oriented people they were innovative and and therefore they bought and used radio stations um, early on and and very effectively. So I was raised hearing this kind of thing, not just at church, but on uh, WMBI uh, in the Chicago area. That's how. Uh, that's how. And it's a, it was a, it was given a lot of weight for a long time across scholarship. Um, uh, there's a, if if you want to, and we we've got to move beyond this, but something worth listening to. If you, I mean, you, you guys know, I'm kind of an Al Moeller addict. He he's got this little thing that he does. He interviews um, authors, and uh, it's called Thinking in Public. You can find it on his website. And, and uh, two interviews ago, it's either two or three interviews ago, not very far, you won't have any trouble remembering the title. He interviews a guy uh, who's, um, I think he's, he's with a missions group at the University of um, Wisconsin, but he wrote a book entitled The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. And, and what he meant by that is that I mean we have we have two we we could do interviews this this morning both Jim and Laura are graduates of uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, however, uh, and and they're not like they're young as compared to me, but not young as compared to seminary students anymore, and and so but even by the time they were at Dallas Seminary. Uh, the original dispensational thinking was largely already gone, and they were and they were taught something, you know, a new dispensationalism or a uh, sort of an updated uh, version of that. And that and what Moeller's getting at in that interview is this: this well, this this guy that wrote the book, that updating didn't stop. It's, it's, it's kept on going, and the system is, 
is largely disappearing so that the most prominent voices in the movement are, are somebody like David Jeremiah, who's in his 70s, uh, but has a massive radio audience. That, that's what's happened. In, uh, that's what's happened. But it, but, but it spread because the people in it really love the Bible, which is why you were drawn to it. It's why I was drawn to it. Um, yes, yes. Well, no, and it's not, and, and more, more to the point, it's dangerous, right? Because it only worked in America. That idea, that did, that did not work, like we mentioned a couple weeks ago, that did not work in Stalin's Russia. How bad could it get for Christians? In Stalin's Russia, it got as bad as it can get. Because you can only torture people so slowly. Um, and that's what was going on. It's so, it was as bad as it could get. And, and what they needed was to know that perseverance was the only hope they had. And you hold fast and you hang on um, and, and that's it. So we'll, let's go to Revelation 3. Let me read... Uh, and then next week we'll come back and we'll finish off with chapters 4 and 5, which really are just a single vision, a long single vision of the reign of Christ in, in heaven, I think in the present age. Uh, but here we go. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And he who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, So again, the local church in the first century, this is a specific local church, but it also has uh, these universalist tendencies uh, that apply to all churches uh, at all at all times, and uh, and that's certainly true of uh, of this church. The angel of the church in Laodicea, the words, and here's the description of Jesus: of the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So Jesus is depicted here again as the creator of all things, ultimately. But Jesus is not only the creator of all things of the present age through his resurrection, he's also the firstborn of the new creation, the resurrection life. So he is the creator of all the creators. All of his words are true, uh, and they are, are faithful And Jesus can absolutely be relied upon as as ultimate. And he's the one that we are to look to. So that's that, that picture of Jesus. And now we are to note uh, what Jesus knows. And this is the, the famous piece of this letter is all about the water. Um, and, we, and we sometimes argue about it uh, like, like this. So you can be too zealous um, and you can be too cold. And, uh, uh, but, but what Jesus hates even more than those who are too cold is the murky middle, the lukewarm. Um, in other words, if, if in that model, in the way that's sometimes spoken of, you'd think you can't be too indifferent about Jesus. Uh, he would prefer complete indifference to halfwayness. Well, I'm not so sure that there's much in the broader New Testament that would lead you to believe that Jesus is all fired up, happy about complete spiritual indifference. No, no. I think that misses the metaphor that John is using here, right? So the metaphor, the metaphor that he's using is the metaphor of cities known for their water. We've already touched upon one known for its marvelous hot springs. We have, uh, we have a city in, in South Dakota called Hot Springs. You go out there, Evans Plunge, uh, right? It's, it's known for their spring waters. You go out there and bathe in it, and, and some people think it would have medicinal help uh, and so forth. Other cities are known for their tremendously deep wells and wonderful drinking water, where it's right out of the ground because it comes so deep um, is this wonderful drinking water uh, that is 
It's, it's just great. So hot water can be tremendously useful. If you heat it up enough, you know, it's, it's, it's perfect for tea. Um, uh, there's a great uh, illustration. I, I remember listening to uh, um, uh, one of these, our Scottish preachers, you know, in the United States who get very famous off of their a- accent and their, their giftedness, Alistair Begg. Alistair Begg talks about, you know, growing up over in the British Isles, any, any woman worth half her salt, you know, and that always gets up first thing in the morning and would put uh, a kettle of, a tea kettle on, just simmering, not boiling so that it would boil everything out of it, but just hot enough to make a wonderful cup of tea, and they keep that going all day like that. They just get up in the morning, so if you go to a Scottish woman's house, and she says, would you like a cup of tea, you're not going to have to wait for her to go in there and, and boil some water. No, it's all set to go. She's constantly got the water on the boil. She just goes in there, puts it right in the cup, and bang, you got your cup of tea. That's how it works, the wonder of hot water. So that kind of hot water is great. The cold water that you drink tastes great right out of the well. That's wonderful. That's wonderful water. That's wonderful water. Uh, when we had vacation when I was a kid, I can tell you um, not, not to, you know, not to be hard on Nebraskans because some of our Nebraskans are sensitive. Um, but the water at the rest stops in Nebraska, when I was a kid, you needed to really be thirsty um, before you would be interested in drinking out of the drinking fountain uh, along I-80 there in Nebraska. It was not good. It was, it was not good. It was not wall drug. Uh, not like that at all. Uh, that's the point. Great hot water, great cold water. Laodicea is famous for lousy water. It's lukewarm and it's chemicaled up. It tastes ter- terrible. It's like the water along I-80 in Nebraska in the 1960s. Uh, Not great. Not great. Um, Disappointed each time you went to the fountain. It's, It's that. But what makes it so bad is it's water like that that imagines itself to be very, very useful. Imagines itself to be as if very hot or very cold. And, and Jesus, Jesus really, really hates that. Uh, and that's what causes him to spew them out of his mouth. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. 
would that you were cold or hot. In other words, would that you were actually useful water. Thus, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am about to spew you from my mouth. Now, the next picture of them is what makes this so deadly. It's verse 17. For you say that I am rich, and I have become rich, and I have no need. In other words, I'm all spiritually set to go. Um, I'm set. I'm set. Um, Now, some people are, but some people aren't. And if you are not, but you think you are, that's tremendously deadly. Um, there are there are certain theological slants that we can teach ourselves that that make ourselves vulnerable to this. Those of you who are uh, are the the guys in this group that are in our men's group that have read Calvin's Institutes together, um, they'll, they'll be hearing this for like the fifth or sixth time, maybe more than that. But um, uh, one of the things that makes uh, John Calvin uh, truly a great th- theologian is that he's, uh, he's tremendously, he's biblically driven. And 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 he is uh, he's a great example of what people will later refer to. He would he would not like the name Calvinism. Uh, he would not think that you should put his name on anything like that. He would be upset uh, about that. Uh, but but it it happened. Um, and uh, and. But when you read the Institutes of the Christian Religion, uh, and I've, when you read his section on justification by faith alone, um, you would get the impression that Calvin believes uh, that it doesn't matter at all whether you have any fruit of righteousness in your life, period. Because you're not dependent upon fruit of righteousness in your life. You're dependent upon the completed work of Christ, and that work is imputed to you. And so you stand before God rich, and nothing to worry about. You are richer than you think. Um, If you just read Calvin's section on justification in the Institutes, 
That's what you would walk away thinking he thinks. However, And in in his case, you couldn't possibly think that if you read the book sequentially, because before you get there, you've read what he's written on regeneration. Which is that if if you're really justified, you're justified because you've been born again. And what it means to be born again is that the Spirit of God has come into your life, written his law, on your heart, and begun changing you from the inside out. And that change from the inside out is absolutely necessary. And you better have it. And so when you're reading that section, you would guess Calvin could never say what he's about to say when you get to his section on justification. He wouldn't be able to write that, but he does write it. Um, And when you're there, you think, well, he must not have really meant what he said back there about regeneration and how it works. No, no, he believed it, he said it, he meant it. And it's to keep from happening exactly what you see happening here at Laodicea, where somebody only read the section on justification. And they say, hey, I'm good to go. I'm rich. I've got right standing with God. Uh, And somebody tries to say to them, yeah, but you don't seem to have any love for the Lord, and you don't seem to have any desire for righteousness. Well, who made you the judge? Quit judging me. Uh, Judging is bad. It's about the only bad thing in the Bible. Uh, Judge not lest you be judged. Don't you be judging me. I've got perfect right standing before God. I'm rich. I'm rich. I'm good to go. But if you're not actually born again and you think you're rich, what are you? You're doomed. You're doomed. Now, though you're a Protestant, you've become full, you've come full circle, right? Uh, you, you, you've become, you know, you've become again, you know, a, a, a good solid Roman Catholic in Oak Park, Illinois. What's your hope? Well, I'm Catholic. I'm, I was baptized. I'm As long as I go to Mass and things like that with some regularity, I'm, I'm good. I don't know much about these things. But, but no, that's how it works. That's how it works. I'm good to go. Well, that's a dangerous place to be. That's a really dangerous place to be. And we get ourselves there, and that's... Some version of that is what's going on here at Laodicea. I'm rich. Uh, I mean, we're, we're, we're in Christ somehow. Um, uh, we, are, we, are, we are good to go. Uh, we've got nothing to worry about. 
And, and notice what he goes on to say about them. He says, no, you've got bad information about yourselves. Because you are wretched, and you are pitiful, and you are poor, and you are blind, and you are naked. That is, far from being clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ, you're naked. No! You're not at all who you think you are. He's saying to them, many of you, you're not at all who you think you are. You're just not. And you need to address that. You're in trouble. You're in desperate trouble and don't know it. Um... And so he says, and you need to receive this eye salve. Put on your eyes. In order that you may see. Say, so, well, and then you want to, then somebody says back, well, that's, uh, I don't like this Jesus. He's being judgmental. He's being judgmental. But notice how Jesus views this. This is not what he refers to as judgmental. He says this about what he is saying to them. He says, I, whomever I love, I convict and I instruct. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. Repent to what? Well, to what he told them in verse 18. But I desire for you to buy from me gold, having been fired from the fire, in order that you may actually be rich, and white garments, in order that you may put them on, and not be manif- in, the, in the shame of your nakedness will not be manifested. And then the eye salve, to put on your eyes, so that you will so that you'll see. Uh, Be sure that you are hanging on to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. That's what Jesus calls us to. And that's what you hang on to as the church. And that's what the church of Laodicea needs to do. It's a really Johnny one note kind of thing. And, and you see that, and you see that um, very much in the most famous verse, of course, in this section is verse 20. And behold, I have stood upon the door and I knock. If anyone may hear my voice and may open the door, I shall enter to him and I shall sup with him and he with me. Uh, So what's going on in this letter is this whole letter is Jesus really standing at the door of the church of Laodicea. And notice what knocking stands for. Behold, 
I stand at the door and knock. But then he doesn't say, and whoever answers the door. No, no, no. He says, and whoever hears my voice, that's the knock at the door. The word of Christ. The word of God. Behold, I stand at the door of your life and I offer you my word, my direction, my wisdom. That's what I offer you. And without that, without that, You're wretched and poor. You've got nothing. You're not who you think you are. Uh, And it is through that word that you purchase the gold. And it's through that word that you come to have eyes that see all of those things come out of that word and you end up with this profound fellowship with God. We refer to it all the time when we go to the the Lord's table, but you notice that fellowship language. John used that back in 1 John 1, 5 and following. And this is the promise which we have heard from him, and we are announcing to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. And don't do the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This fellowship with God, to walk in the light, to walk in the word of Christ is the key is the key to everything um, and and the church of laodicea has has slipped from that desperately badly uh, my brother did a funeral yesterday for a uh, guy in town he didn't know really at all uh, but the guy's son uh, knew my brother Doug, and so came to him and asked if he would do the funeral. And uh, and and like here, the night before the funeral, even more than here, a much more extended version of this. This uh, this particular guy, though he lived in the village there, he was uh, he was a white guy uh, who had uh, who had married um, a Witsotan woman, and so he lived on the reserve. Uh, low, uh, as uh, as a white person, and he'd been there for many many years. He was in his he was in his nineties. Uh, well, if you've ever been to anything related to death uh, on an Indian reserve, it's it's a much 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 bigger deal than what we do in our in our culture. The, uh, the before the funeral is bigger, uh, the funeral is bigger, 
and, and the dinner and things like that that happen after the funeral, they refer to it as a potlatch, that is much bigger with many more speeches in it and, and all kinds of things uh, like that. And so, uh, but my, my brother made the comment that uh, uh, the previous night, the night before when he got up and he shared a little bit about what he learned about this guy, and he knew about him from living in the village himself for 40 years. Um, but he said, as soon as, I, as soon as I opened my Bible to read something, he said, several of the guys just, they just got up and left. That was their cue. Like, they got, they got up and left. Now, these people would understand themselves to sort of be, they, they, they would probably self-identify as Roman Catholics. So they're, they're, they're church people. Uh, but in the village, you know, Roman Catholicism is, is really wedded together with, uh, with, with um, native beliefs. And so a, a, big, a, a big piece, whenever you attend one of these things, is there'll, there'll be a Catholic element and then there's the native element. And the element, the native element that it usually takes is something like this. Your ancestors come and meet you and greet you when you die. And so it's a tremendously comforting thing. And so the, you know, the, the, the ancestors are coming and they'll name several of them by name. And, uh, and, 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 they'll, and they'll come there and they'll meet you. And, and everything, everything will be okay. Everything will be okay. So you don't have to ask whether or not you really knew Jesus or followed Jesus or, yeah, well, you know, that's all in there, I suppose, someplace. But don't worry about it. Don't worry about it very much. That's what puts people in such of a deadly spot. The average American's in exactly the same place. What do we think? Well, I, just, I mean, unless, unless you've murdered a bunch of people, everybody goes to heaven when they die. Pretty much. Everyone goes to heaven when they die. I mean, you're, you'd be, you're just judgmental if you say anything short of that. Everything, everybody goes to heaven. When they die, and then they keep track of what's going on down here a bit, and and it's all fine. It's all fine. That's how it goes. That's how it goes. And what this letter of Laodicea is saying is most people think that way, and they're wrong. That's not true. Most people who think they're fine, that they've got it all taped up, they're actually wretched and pitiable and poor and lost and damned and ruined. That's where they are. And Jesus brings this word and says, your only hope is embracing my word, my voice, trusting me, embracing me, trusting in the gospel. That's your only hope. And I stand at the door and I knock, and if you hear my voice, I'll come in and uh, fellowship with you. And, and you can uh, fellowship with me. 
John 14, 23. Just, and then we'll, then we'll finally make it to a closing section of, the, of one of these letters before we run out of time. John 14, 23. Great picture of how Jesus teaches us to think about these things. And you just examine your own heart and say, all right, this has got to be me. Uh, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves my word, uh, he shall keep it. And my father shall love him. And we shall come to him. And we shall make our dwelling with him. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, if anyone loves my word, if anyone loves my word, what's your attitude toward the words of Christ, the word of God, the Bible? What is it? That's a really big question. You want to be sure that you are among those who love that word. Um, and Because if you love it, if you love it, he opens the door and you have table fellowship with him. Now back to the whole rapture thing one last, one last time. So back Revelation chapter 3, end of it, all seven times. All seven times in these two chapters, each of the letters closes the same way. The one conquering, I shall give to him to sit with me in my throne as I also conquered and sat with my father in his throne. How did Jesus conquer? How did Jesus conquer? He died on the cross and rose from the dead on the third day. But he died on the cross. He didn't escape anything. He conquered by going through torture and crucifixion. That's what he did. That's how he conquered. Uh, And that's who our conquering is compared to. Don't expect, when he says the one conquering, he doesn't mean the one riding down Main Street on a white horse in a parade with people waving at you. No, no, no. This isn't that kind of conquering. This is the kind of conquering where where somebody hangs on to their faith in the prison camp, in the gulag, in Siberia. That's the kind of conquering this is. That's what he's talking about here. The one hanging on to the faith He's going to end up in the end seated with me at the right hand of God, resurrected and ascended. For that person will eventually be resurrected and brought into a new heaven and a new earth 
That's the picture. That's the picture. And they'll sit just as I sit with my father in his throne right now. And then as all seven letters, the one having ears, the one having ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want you to think about, you know, we'll we'll, we'll go back to what um, uh, Barb's, Barb's comment, which I thought was a very good comment, uh, and we'll close off with this and then give you a chance for questions. But back, back, to the, back to the dispensationalists, back to the fundamentalists. I was raised among them. And, uh, and it's a mixed... It's a mixed bag. Churches are. All churches are a mixed bag. Uh, but the fundamentalist movement is a very was a very, very mixed bag, on uh, for good and ill. Um, but on the good side, in fact, the single biggest thing on the good side was this group of people that tended to carry their Bibles to church on a Sunday morning. Because in Sunday school and in the worship service, you were likely to need to open it and have the opportunity to follow along. And while you had your Bible open and you were following along, you might come across something like the middle of our text for this morning that would challenge you to say, Are you really a Christian? There's lots of places where you could go to church. That would never happen. That would simply never happen. You don't look at the Bible. You don't read it. You're certainly not challenged by it. No, it never happens. It never happens. Um. He closes here by, by letting us know, see, it is such of a big thing whether or not you're in a position to hear the voice of Jesus knocking on your life and then grabbing hold of it and holding fast for dear life. And he closes off each time by saying, what a wonderful thing it is to have been in a position like that and had ears to hear. Had ears to hear. And to have heard that message come to you from the Bible and having believed it and having loved it and having your life shaped by it so that you began walking in it. What a magnificent thing. And that's the wonder of the church, however much of a mixed bag we may be. And our little Bible church was a very mixed bag. But that was in it. That was in it. In spades. 
And what a mighty blessing it was that that was in it. Any questions before we close? And then we'll, next week, as I say, we'll be back chapters 4 and 5. We'll do uh, the big, big vision in Revelation 4 and 5. Okay, let me close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to have words from you. Lord, as we think of who you are, how majestic, we think of your words to us, how precious, how saving, how magnificent. Oh, Lord, may you make us genuinely rich in Christ so that we come in and have fellowship with you, know you, the living God, walk with you through our lives. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.